0: Hello, hello, this is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I get into introducing my guest, I want to just talk about a few shows I've watched this week or I'm watching this week. I did finish Indian Matchmaking, which I spoke about with Brian Samuels on my last podcast. I didn't love it. I got to be honest. I liked it. I thought parts of it were interesting. There were a few good characters, but I thought it was a little bit all over the place and honestly got kind of boring. So I don't know if I watched the second season, but it was definitely interesting and different. I'll give it that. I did binge all of Selling Sunset, no surprise there. And what can I say? It's not good and I love it. That's really, you know, if you love, as we said on our podcast, if you love real estate porn and you love glossy, pretty people, then that shows for you. Does it have any depth? No, it does not, but it's still a fun ride. Lastly, I watched a documentary from 2011. A little embarrassed, took me nine years on this one, but um, it is... About it's called Every Little Step. It's on Amazon Prime. And I am a musical nerd. And A Chorus Line was one of my favorite musicals of all time. And it's about the revival of A Chorus Line and them casting for the revival. So if you're into Chorus Line, honestly, I'm not sure if you don't know Chorus Line, it's probably not for you. But if you've seen Chorus Line or love it like I do, I I was just ecstatic. I was singing along to everything and just had the best time watching it. I really loved it. So today on the podcast, Karina Longworth. Karina is the host of the very successful and just unbelievable podcast called You Must Remember This. Every season's another deep dive into old Hollywood. So this latest season, which just wrapped up, is called The Invisible Woman, and it's about the life and career of producer Polly Platt. Now, if you haven't listened to this podcast yet, I know I've mentioned it before and told you you should be listening to it. Please stop what you're doing and just binge it immediately. It's 10 hours or 10 episodes, so it's a long binge, but it's worth every second. I cannot honestly remember the last time I was this in love with a series that affected me so deeply. Karina is a former film critic and writer of books. She is most recently the author of a book on Howard Hughes, and her writing and research skills are in full display on this Polly podcast. We get into Polly's story, how this podcast was able to come together, whether Polly's experiences in Hollywood as a woman would be different today, and how doing the podcast affected Karina on a personal level. Hi, Karina. Welcome to the podcast. Hi,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Thrilled to have you. I discovered your podcast, ironically, through learning about the Peter Bogdanovich podcast that TCM did, and I was so I don't want to go too overboard, but I have to tell you that this <laughs> Polly podcast might be my favorite podcast of all time. And I listen to a lot of podcasts.
1: Oh my God. Thank you so much.
0: Just blown away by it. And now that I follow you on Twitter, I can see that I'm not alone. The love for it has been <laughs> really something, huh? Is it what you expected?
1: You know, you never really know what to expect. I mean, I've been doing, you must remember this, for six years and there's certainly a core of passionate fans. Um, But I do think that Polly's story connected with a lot of people in the film industry who were sort of sharing it and, and talking about how unfortunately not that much has changed over time.
0: Right. We definitely will get into that. What made you want to tell Polly's story in particular and do it as an ARC series over, I think it was 10 episodes.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of what I, I generally do and You Must Remember This is that I, I tell stories as seasons um, so that I can really kind of get into them and, and do long form journalism. Um, but Polly's story was something that I, I've been interested in for, you know, 20 years um, ever since I first kind of found out about this love triangle on the set of, of the last picture show between her and her then husband, Peter Bogdanovich, who was the director of the film and the 19 year old star of the film, Sybil Shepherd. Um, and, you know, when I was um, in college, this book, Easy Writers, Raging Bulls, came out, which became this sort of foundational text about 70s Hollywood. And, and even though it was revealing a lot of sort of negative and unsavory things about the male filmmakers of that time, at the same time, it was also lionizing them and, and kind of encouraging a fetishization of their, of their greatness and their bad behavior. So that was just something I kind of grew up with. Um, and I'd always wanted to know more about the women involved. You know, a lot of those men had female romantic partners who were also creative partners. And Polly Platt was an incredible example of that. Um, so while certainly in the 70s, and I think even after that, the media spotlight drifted away from her towards Peter as this boy genius filmmaker in this very glamorous relationship with Sybil Shepard. Polly continued to do the work and she just wasn't in the spotlight. And so I'd always wanted to know more about her. And then a few years ago, I met Stacey Scher, who is a a Oscar nominated producer. Um, And she, you know, we had dinner and she told me that she had read Polly's unfinished, unpublished memoir. Um, And so I, you know, I had not known that this had even existed and was super excited about it and just hoped that I would get a chance to read it one day. And then in the spring of 2019, um, you know, circumstances kind of <laughs> coalesced so that Stacey was able to introduce me to Polly and Peter's two daughters, Sashi and Antonio, who shared the memoir with me. Um, and I, you know, I knew that it was unfinished and I wanted to be the person to help finish it and put it out there in some form. And first, my first tried to do it as a book and my then book agent was really discouraging of it. Um, and we talked to a few other people in the literary world, and it was just kind of hard to get the literary world to care about Polly Platt at that time. Um, because she was sort of positioned as somebody that nobody had ever heard of. And, you know, it's this chicken versus egg situation of, well, nobody's ever heard of her. And that's why we need to write a book about her because she's this sort of forgotten character who was really important. Um, but I, you know, after a few months, of sort of trying to do it as a book, um, I realized that I have total freedom in the podcast space, and that I could sort of do it in that format and and make the case for why she's important and why her story needs to be told.
0: Wow, that backstory is fascinating. I didn't realize <laughs> that you had tried it as a book first. Had her daughters ever tried to publish it as a book?
1: They hadn't. Um, you know, Polly died in two thousand eleven, and. And it was a really traumatic situation. And I think that even as late as 2019, and even today, I mean, the doctors are still sort of sorting out how they feel about a lot of things. Um, So they hadn't tried to do anything with it. And, you know, I think that they were just happy to to get their mom's story out there in any format, but we would still like to try to do it as a book. Um, And, you know, maybe as a documentary, you know, I think there's there's still a lot of story to be told, and there's still a lot of people to reach who maybe don't listen to podcasts.
0: Oh, yeah. I would watch it in any form. I agree. would make an <laughs> incredible documentary. So what made you pick Maggie Seif to narrate the Polly voice? I love Maggie from Billions.
1: Yeah. Um, and Mad Men, which was where I first right, saw her. Right. Um, So I, I knew that, you know, there have been times on the podcast in the past where I've done the voices of famous people or I've had friends do them. And I knew that this was a lot of material, so it wouldn't make sense for me to do it. And I, I also needed somebody who was a real, you know, a real talent and who could really connect to Polly's story. And so I talked to a couple of different actresses. um, But when I, when I connected with Maggie through a mutual friend of ours, the director Karen Kasama, um, you know, it was just really apparent that she got the material, felt a personal connection to it, and also, I think some people who I talked to had been a little afraid of doing it because, you know, Polly makes some very candid comments about people who are still alive, and there were some performers who didn't want to be the literal voice of that. Um, but Maggie was totally unafraid.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. You could, I'm not sure what it was, but you could tell she really felt it. Like it felt like it was Polly coming through. Like she was channeling her. It was incredible.
1: Yeah. And she felt that way too. I mean, we recorded, you know, we recorded all of her material during the quarantine. So she was, um, oh, Wow. she was on the East coast and I was in Los Angeles and we were sort of on FaceTime video, like looking at each other while she was recording on a microphone that I sent her. Um, and so, and you know, I've never met Maggie in person. I've only dealt with her over the phone and, and through that. Um, and you know, it just turned into this thing where we're, we're kind of meeting this way twice a week for several weeks and kind of getting to know each other as she was getting to know Polly. And so it was a really interesting
0: process. Incredible. Did you have to get Sasha and Antonia, uh, Polly's daughter's permission to use Maggie. Did they have say on who they wanted to read that part? No. Okay. So did they have so you they, they didn't want any creative input on the podcast. They were just more no. interview subjects.
1: They didn't a- no, they didn't ask for any creative um, input. They were interview subjects and they helped connect me to a few people in their mom's life. Um, and you know, they, they made suggestions about things I should cover and, and people I should talk to, but they weren't really involved in the writing or editing process at all.
0: So I want to kind of walk through some, I mean, there's a lot in the podcast and obviously everyone who listens to this better go listen to it because it's <laughs> worth every second. In fact, I want to re-listen in a few weeks after I've had a little break because I just devoured every episode. I want to just sort of hit on some of the highlights. And again, Polly did so much and had such a rich life, but I'm curious about her psychology. And I think you did an incredible job of digging into who she was in every facet of her personality. And by the end, I felt like we really got a full picture, even though I guess, even with a memoir and even with everybody, you never know someone completely. Yeah. I want to start with her upbringing. I, I think what came through to me the most about the way that she was raised is that she was raised with sort of that, you know, you suck it up, you survive, you don't complain and you carry on. And that was sort of the message that came through to me from her childhood. And that obviously was something that carried through to the way that she lived her life. What was your impressions of the way that she was raised in her early years?
1: Yeah. I mean, her, there's a really large portion of her memoir that is about her life before she went to college. And um, I was, you know, sort of only able to fit in, I would say about 50% of that material into the podcast. Um, but it's this fascinating story where her, her dad was a military lawyer. And so after she was born in 1939. And after World War II in 1940, I think it was late 1945, um, her her family moved to Europe so that her dad could be a prosecutor in the war crimes tribunals. And so they lived in in different parts of France and Germany, and her mother uh, was mentally ill and, you know, was, let's say, misdiagnosed or improperly medicated. I mean, the sort of way of dealing with what she probably had, which was bipolar disorder, um, you know, in the 1940s and 50s was rudimentary at best. So, um, but she was not always present as a mother. Um, and both of Polly's parents were alcoholics. And so she was at a very early age, kind of left to her own devices. Um, and, you know, she had a visual imagination and very, Pretty early in her life, she came to find movies as a kind of escape from her child, from her from her home life, which you know was difficult and and isolating. And so she kind of fell in love with particularly westerns, um, and was able to kind of find, kind of imagine for herself a way out of her situation through the movies which is something that I, I think is, and I, I don't even know if I made enough of a big deal of it in the podcast, but it's something that's would be rare for anyone as a nine-year-old in the late 1940s to watch a movie and, and think about ways in which they themselves could make movies. This was before there were film schools. This was before there was really any sort of known path to that kind of work. But it was especially unusual for, for a girl because The work that Polly ended up doing as a production designer and art director, there were no women doing that in Hollywood at the time. And if you were a young woman who was interested in movies, I mean, all of the conversation, all of the media was about maybe if you're beautiful enough, you could be discovered and you could be in movies. Mm -hmm, There was no conversation about working behind the scenes creatively.
0: One of the things that you said in your show notes that I thought was really interesting in the first episode, was that her childhood shaped her view of gender roles and relations and her idea of what it meant to be the wife of an important man. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, so her her mother had had a career of her own. She had worked at an investment bank in the 1930s before she got pregnant. Um, and when she married a, a guy in the military, um, she had you know stopped working and, and become a full-time wife and mother. And she had done that with this assumption that her husband was going to become more successful than she could ever be on her own. And then his career kind of stalled out. Um, He, you know, did not become rich, did not become sort of super important. Um, And her mother was very unsatisfied. Um, And so I think Polly got sort of two impressions. One was just that um, if when you're choosing a man, you have to choose one that's gonna do great things. And when you, if you find that man and you marry him, you need to support him. But the other thing that she learned was that if you're capable of having a career and you have a passion for having a career, there's a real downside to giving that up. Um, And it it can really wreck you in terms of your confidence and in terms of your happiness.
0: Right, which obviously resonated in her relationship with Peter later on. So mm-hmm. she does have a first marriage, which was kind of traumatic, and then ends up moving to New York City. She meets Peter Bogdanovich and sort of love at first sight. They're both obsessed with movies and they bond over that. And then they start working together right away. And they do some early stuff, then have they give birth to is Antonia the oldest? Uh,
1: Antonia is the oldest, followed by
0: Sashi. Yeah. Okay, and so at that point, they are partners and essentially working as partners. I think Peter viewed her that way, at least at the beginning, right? Like a full collaborator.
1: He absolutely v- viewed her as his most important collaborator, and even past the point where um, their re- their romantic relationship ended, you know, she was he felt like he she was his best um, source of feedback, but his best source of collaboration for two movies after their marriage ended.
0: Right. So before that, they end up doing the last picture show together, which is obviously a seminal moment in both of their lives and also a seminal moment in film history. It's, you know, considered one of the best films of all time, but that's obviously where, things also take a turn and Peter falls in love with Sybil Shepard, who's sort of the ingenue and it becomes very public. And this is both sort of personal and professional humiliation for Polly. And even though Polly is technically only the art director on the film, she's she's really like the co-director, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that she was careful about what she tried to take credit for Um, But certainly other people who were on that set and the set of other movies she made with Peter suggested that she was just as important um, in terms of the various choices that a director makes as he was. Um, Certainly she had a way of talking to people that was more productive sometimes than the way he had of talking to people. Um, She would make really important decisions about things like locations, Um, she made decisions about visual stuff that would impact the storytelling. Um, And these are all things that you can imagine a director doing under other circumstances.
0: That's what struck me. And you, you mentioned her having this instinct from a really young age, just her decisiveness and knowing exactly how things should look, how things should sound, how things should feel. I just think it's a rare gift and clearly she had it in spades and Peter obviously wasn't the only director who kind of fed off of that. I mean, it seems, you know, James Brooks, she, she, Cameron Crowe, she had so many directors that just saw the gift that she had and wanted to be a part of that and wanted to, you know, just soak it all up.
1: Yeah. And she had a really, I think, unique personality in that, She had that gift and she wanted to give it. She wanted to give it to somebody who would take it and run with it. Um, And so that's why you see her throughout her long career, you know, really working most effectively in collaboration with a director.
0: Right, but directing was something, at least in later in her career, that she really did want to do and it, for different reasons and you go through those, it sort of eluded her but it seems like that may have been her big regret is that she never actually directed herself.
1: I think it was a big regret. I think it was um, an ambition that she was not able to fulfill. But as I talk about in the podcast, the I think the main reason why she wasn't able to fulfill it is because she held herself back because she didn't have enough confidence in herself. And, you know, some people I spoke to, suggested that all of that kind of dates back to the relationship with Peter, um, where she really felt it was a 50-50 collaboration, and she was so confident in their bond that she didn't demand more credit. She just thought that it didn't matter. And then she realized how easily she could be sort of kicked to the curb, you know, not just romantically, but when the romantic relationship is over, she can't sort of be in the spotlight next to him anymore. and so, yeah, I think that I think that when it, she got to the point where the industry had changed and she had built up clout and people believed in her ability to direct, she couldn't get over the hurdle of not believing in herself.
0: And you also get into her alcoholism a bit and how that may have affected or played into it. How much do you think it affected that? So I think
1: that, and I... You know, at some point, I can't remember what episode, but there's an editor who worked with her who was like, you know, we were all drinking. um, And if anybody deserved to have a drink at the end of a hard day, it was Polly Platt, you know, but there are also people who say that she wasn't just having a drink at the end of a hard day. I mean, she was drinking at work and, and she admitted in her memoir that she would, you know, sometimes bring like a six pack of beer to work or, or start in on a bottle of wine while still at her desk. So I think that to some extent, what she was doing was normalized, certainly more than it would be today. Um, But she kind of took it to extremes. And I think both of her daughters feel that her alcoholism, um, you know, it was sort of a a monkey on her back in her personal life. And it was something where, you know, there are are some people who think it didn't matter. And some people I talked to who think that it was, the ultimately the only thing that mattered in terms of her career.
0: Hmm. Interesting. You do spend a lot of time obviously with Polly and Peter and their relationship. And like you said, how she goes on to work with Peter on what's up doc and paper moon, even after their relationship dissolves. I'm curious if you list, first of all, did you reach out to Peter for an interview? And if you listen to his podcast, the, um, the Turner movie classics Mm -hmm. podcast,
1: so I made a decision at the beginning of the process not to talk to Peter because I felt that, and some of the people who I had you know, had talked to about this felt that he had been telling his version of the story since 1970. And so the important thing here was to tell Polly's version of the story. Um, and, you know, of course he's still alive. His daughters, you still have a relationship with him. And so um, I was, I felt like I didn't, I wasn't going to shy away from criticizing him, but I also wanted to be judicious about it Um, because, you know, I think a lot of people had very similar things to say about um, his shortcomings and mistakes and a little of that goes a long way. Um, So I tried to include stuff like that where it was necessary, but for the most part, focus on telling Polly's story. Um, and in terms of the turn of classic movies podcast, I didn't want to listen to it while I was still working on my podcast. And I really just finished uh, working on the final episode about three weeks ago. And I just haven't had time to listen to it yet. But, um, I hope that I hope that at some point I'll, I'm sure at some point I'll listen to it because I do find him fascinating and, and he is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I enjoyed that. I mean, it was such a juxtaposition to this podcast. I can't even, you know, I don't even have words to express it, but I think they're an interesting complement to each other in certain ways. And yes, very different stories. So
1: Polly yeah, I mean, up, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that it is a, a wild coincidence that both of these things kind of came out into the world at the same time. I didn't know that TCM was doing their show and they've said that they didn't know that I was doing my show. Um, the, I think the only person that, that may have known about both was
0: Peter. But the daughters, too. The daughters were interviewed for it.
1: Yeah, they, I think, didn't know about it until mine was had been underway for quite some time, though.
0: Interesting. So Polly ended up. Also having a long collaboration with the director James Brooks, who's a genius. I love some of his films are my favorite of all times. I just rewatched Terms of Endearment with my daughter a few weeks ago, and I thought there's no way, I fi- I haven't seen it since I was a kid, and I thought you know there's mm-hmm. no way I'm going to be bawling and get all caught up, and there I am like a puddle on the floor. I don't know if you rewatched it in your <laughs> research. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you cry again, or did I well, don't know you if you cried? I-
1: I actually I have to turn it off at some point um basically like when she's in the hospital and they're like we're not going to get the cancer like it's just you're you're not going to survive um at that point I I can't watch it anymore it's like in dance we're in the dark where she has to leave the movie theater before the end of the movie Right. Um,
0: that, I uh that's the yeah, point so, that's the point yeah. where the tears come flowing yeah <laughs> it's it's something And it was so cool seeing Polly's name because I watched it after I finished the podcast or maybe I was in the middle. It was so cool. And then broadcast news. I started in local news. So that was my holy grail. I mean, I've seen that movie a million times. And my favorite scene. Yeah. My favorite scene, which I think you reference in the podcast, but if not the specific scene, you reference sort of the overall way that Holly Hunter's character is sort of loosely based, even though it was based on Susan Zerinsky from CBS news, it was also sort of based on Polly and her perfectionism and feeling like she's always right. So I just want to play that clip. It must be nice to always believe, you know, better, to always think you're the smartest person in the room. No, it's awful. I always related to that seed too, because I think any strong woman, kind of feels like sometimes the men around her can be idiotic and how do they not know (laughs) the right way to do things? So it was, it really resonated. I mean, I didn't know the connection to Polly and I didn't know she was involved in that film. Did you see, when you rewatched broadcast news, did you see Polly in Holly Hunter's character?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I had had her daughters and a lot of other people who knew her tell me for years that the, the, Shirley MacLaine character in terms of endearment was based on Polly. But um, I see more of Polly from the Mm -hmm. Polly that I got to know from reading her memoir in the in the Holly Hunter character in broadcast news.
0: Yeah, same. I didn't see it as clearly with Aurora in the Mm -hmm. way that I did with Holly, for sure. Um, Stacey Scher, who you mentioned earlier, it was a fantastic interview. She said that, you know, Polly was a perfectionist in all facets of her life and that getting it right was the most important thing for her. And I think that one of the things that comes through in her memoir is how much she struggled with not just sort of the perfectionism of the work, but always feeling like she was failing as a mother and that she somehow could never balance those two. But it was important to her to be a quote unquote good mother. I'm curious what your take is on that.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's one of the defining struggles of her life and she just, she was never really able to feel like she had, was balancing the scales, at least not while her daughters were growing up. I mean, I think when they were a little bit older, you know, and she wasn't, um, they weren't so dependent on her for survival. <laughs> I think things got a little bit easier, but um, yeah. And it's just, it's unfathomable, it's unfathomable to a lot of young women today, I think, to understand how rare it was that Polly was um, a woman working on location of movies as a single mom. Um, because other than actresses and you know, some costume designers, some screenwriters, but a really there was a really small amount of women who would go and work on location um, behind the scenes. And so, and, and work the kinds of hours that male crew, crew members work and be expected to, um, leave home for months at a time. And so she was in a situation where she really didn't have any role models in terms of like, how do you do the work that you want to do while also taking care of your two very small kids? Um, you know, and I think she did the best she could. And I think she often turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism, which unfortunately made her life much more difficult, even though she thought it was making it easier. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that when she got sober, she was able to, um, she was able to recognize some of her mistakes and try to make amends. And... I I know that her daughters understood that she loved them and that um, they were extremely important to her, even if it didn't always feel that way when they were growing up.
0: Right. And it's just further goes to your sort of overall theme of the fact that that's something that women have to struggle with specifically. And these are never seem to be, you know, father struggles, male director struggles.
1: Well, certainly at the time in the 70s and 80s, men, working men were not expected to participate in raising children in any real way. I mean, I know that from my own childhood of, of growing up in the 80s, and my dad was just at work. He just wasn't around. Um, but and you know, nowadays I think that there there is culturally, there's more emphasis on on both parents, you know, sharing the weight, but Really, at the end of the day, I think in most relationships, it comes down to the mother.
0: Yes, I can vouch for this. (laughs) That's all I'll say. So what's so interesting, again, with Polly is that when she started her collaboration with James Brooks, she was really responsible for some of the careers of some of the biggest directors, that we have now, including Wes. She basically discovered Wes Anderson and fought for his script, Bottle Rocket, and got it made when kind of nobody wanted to do it. And Cameron Crowe with Say Anything. And Cameron Crowe had some really beautiful things to say about her. What do you think her impact is today on film in terms of supporting some of these bitter director, in terms of supporting some of these bigger directors and really launching their careers?
1: Well, I think that one thing that is, um, a common thread, which I didn't really realize until I was doing, doing the research for the podcast, because you think of her as being so identified with Bogdanovich's movies, but, uh, and especially the last picture show, which is, um, you know, it, it has like a few jokes in it, but it's like, it's a pretty serious movie. Um, but there's a real thread throughout her career of her sort of guiding these prestige comedies. And. What's Up Doc and Paper Moon sort of fit in there, but there's more of a trajectory from, say, Terms of Endearment to Bottle Rocket, of these movies that are essentially comedies, but are also trying to get at something deeper about human beings. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that comedy in general is a priority for Hollywood in 2020, but certainly for this period from about 1980 to about, Say 2005, 2010, you know, that it almost seemed like that was the highest form of Hollywood movie was a movie that, you know, was fun and could make you laugh, but could also make you cry and also had these sort of meaty performances, you know, the kinds of movies that movie stars would want to be in. Um, And so she's just, she's so important to terms of endearment happening. I mean, it's a movie where it, for a couple of different reasons it may not have been made and it may not have been as great as it is if she hadn't been involved and i think that that movie is so important in starting this kind of trajectory of those kinds of films so even if she had just been involved with terms of endearment that would be something but then she goes on and she kind of works her magic that she had with first time directors with Cameron Crowe on Say Anything, and then again with Wes Anderson on Bottle Rocket, and kind of gives them her gifts, which allows them to sort of catapult from their first movie into these careers where they're auteurs making, you know, really specific kinds of movies.
0: Right. And she stopped writing her memoir around the time of Bottle Rocket in 1995. What what happened? Why do you think she stopped writing? Because it was before she got sick.
1: Yeah. So she um, she didn't stop writing in 1995. She was writing it all later, but she. Oh, sorry. That she started. She. Yeah. yeah, She. The memoir cuts off in around 1995, while um, Bottle Rocket is in post production, and she did stop writing it a few years before she got sick. She abandoned it, and um, you know I've you know heard a few different things from a few different sources. It seems like she got to this point where she was feeling really down on herself and her legacy, and she thought that nobody would ever, you know, read her memoir, that nobody cared about her experiences and that they weren't important. Um, I've also heard that she got to the point where she was going to have to write about the end of her working relationship with James L. Brooks, and she didn't want to do it. Um, certainly, you know, I, as I say in the podcast, I mean, I think that there's some stuff that went on there that nobody wanted to talk about on the record. Um, uh, Brooks himself didn't respond to multiple requests I made to interview him. Um, so I think that there's some stuff there that she didn't want to say and that he doesn't want to say and that nobody really wants to talk about. Um, and, you know, I, I was able to kind of get. I think around it um you know certainly people told me and it's in the podcast that she felt betrayed and and there is a sense that she was sort of um the messenger who was killed when the movie mm-hmm. they made together I'll do anything did not do well after she had predicted that it was a problematic production um You know, but I, you know, I do think that there's something where it's like she kind of hit a wall of how honest she could be. And then she didn't feel like she could be honest anymore. And she couldn't get over that wall.
0: Which is ironic because what I love so much about her is her bluntness and her honesty and these no, her having no filters, which is what so many people comment on. That was very rare for especially a woman at that time, you know, in the 70s and 80s.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also think that when she was writing the memoir, she was kind of still processing what had happened. And because she, you know, maintained this friendship with Jim and with a couple of other people from the Gracie films years. And and I think she wasn't sure if the story was over for a long time because she, she did go and work on this film Spanglish, which was made in the, in the mid-2000s. And, um, you know, I think she thought that, like, I think she didn't want to necessarily put all this stuff on the record because she wasn't sure if the story was over yet.
0: So Polly ends up getting ALS and deteriorating pretty quickly. And it really made me cry, not just for Polly's life ending, but for this whole wonderful woman and her career coming to an end prematurely. And one of the, I can't remember who it was, but someone you interviewed was memorializing her and saying that you know, these shitty men worth nothing are (laughs) celebrated and Polly could do absolutely anything and she was never given her due. And I wonder if that relates to why you called the podcast, The Invisible Woman, because she was so visible and yet also kind of invisible.
1: Yeah. That, that person who said those shitty men, which is a phrase that I like (laughs) could also be a title for this or something (laughs) else. I mean, it's, yeah, that was Peggy Steffens, who um, was Polly's best friend from college and stayed friends with her for the rest of her life and who also has an incredible personal story because she married a softcore porn director in the late 60s and they were together until he died about five years ago. And like they, she was basically like his producer and working behind the scenes to help him make his softcore porn movies um, for 40 years. But anyway, uh, yeah, the in the the title "The Invisible Woman," that was actually an idea that Stacey share had at the very, very beginning. Like mm-hmm. she, you know, can't remember she said the phrase "The Invisible Woman," but, you know, I think she was talking about Polly and some of these other um, female collaborators of male directors like Marshall Lucas and Eleanor Coppola and Toby Rafelson, who's also in the podcast, mm-hmm. and she was saying, like these women these women behind the men were invisible or are invisible. Um, And, you know, I think, I think the idea, the reason why it was evocative for me really was because of this idea that she is this presence behind movies that are classic, but it's not like musty old classics, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's movies that like you're watching on cable all the time. Um, but you just don't talk about them as being Polly Platt movies.
0: Right. I love that it wasn't just the story of Polly, but it was this larger story about being a woman in Hollywood, trying to make movies, direct movies to have power and agency, which I think is still very resonant. And I do think things are changing and obviously have changed. But I'm curious where you think things are. And would Polly, if she were alive now, nine years later, be excited about what's happening? Would you feel frustrated that it, nothing has changed or things haven't changed enough? Like, what do you think the state of the industry is now in terms of that?
1: It's hard for me to put myself in Polly's point of view on that. So I I, I won't say what she would think, but what I think is um, that things have not changed very much. And there's been a lot of attention on some women getting chances to direct big Hollywood movies, but I feel like the whole industry has changed so much and that so few personal movies are being made. And it just seems like, it seems I think more impossible than ever that you would get women making, b- women being allowed to make big budget movies that were personal to them. Um, You know, I mean, even something like A League of Their Own, it just doesn't feel like that could get made with a female director today.
0: That's so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Really depressing. Damn. (laughs) How did getting to know Polly affect you? And did it change you at all?
1: I, you know, I, I have this thing with doing the podcast where when people ask me, you know, what is your favorite season or your favorite episode? I always say the one I just finished because, I do have to kind of dive so deep into the research that I, it's almost like I've forgotten. By the time it's over, I've forgotten <laughs> everything I did before. But with Polly, it was just like that exponentially because I did spend longer on this than I have on on any other podcast season. I started working on this in March 2019, and I finished it in July 2020. Um, but also, you know, there's there's something that's really intimate about reading somebody's unpublished writing that they didn't know if anybody else would see and which really hasn't been professionally edited. And so you feel like somebody is talking directly to you. And in a lot of ways, Polly's story had a lot of resonance with my own life and my own story and the personality that she revealed in her writing and that I got to know from talking to people about her was sometimes uncomfortably close to my own personality um and so you know i instead of you know becoming sort of jaded or over familiar with the material as i went on as the process went on i became more fascinated by her and felt sort of more personally motivated to tell her story and so um you know, it's, it's actually, it's kind of a hard thing to move on from because you don't get that with every story. You don't get that personal connection.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And also, so many of the stories that you tell on the podcast are a lot older. I mean, this is sort of contemporary. Mm-hmm. You really dig into old Hollywood, which I love. My own personal connection is I was working or about to start working on a documentary with Clark Gable's grandson before he died. A few years ago. Yeah. So I just went back and listened to your episode with Gable and Lombard, which I loved. What made you want to start the podcast and tell the stories of old Hollywood?
1: Well, it's it's always been something I was passionate about. And I I went to graduate school at NYU to study cinema studies and, and to study the history of Hollywood. But then you know, just kind of being in my 20s in New York, I needed a job. <laughs> right. So I started, I became a, a film critic of contemporary movies. And I was pretty successful at that. I mean, I I was, the, I ended up becoming the film critic for the Village Voice and the film editor for the LA Weekly. Um, but after a while, I, I you know, really burnt out on the treadmill of of writing about new movies, because there's so many things that come out or or did when movie theaters were open? Um, you know, there'd be twelve to fifteen movies coming out every week, and I was expected to see them all and have an opinion about all of them. And most movies are garbage. Um, they're not <laughs> only right. are they, you know, I mean, it's not even that they're all bad. It's just that they're disposable. And so the the intellectual effort and the emotional effort. And even the time commitment of seeing all these films and, and having to take them all seriously was so draining. And I, you know, I'd gone to graduate school to study film history and the history of the industry and, and the movies of primarily the 1930s through 1970s. And I just wanted to get back to that. So I quit my job and I tried a few different things. I tried teaching, I wrote a couple of, of small press books, um, but I got to the point in 2014 where I felt like I, there wasn't, you know, some full-time job out there for me, except for maybe being a programmer at Turner Classic Movies, but they were based in Atlanta at that time. So that just seems, um, not, not attainable. And so I thought, well, I don't know, you know, what my career path is right now, but I, what I need to do is I need to make something that is exactly what I want to do. That shows off what I think my talents are in the voice that I want to communicate this stuff in. And then, you know, at least that'll be out there as some kind of calling card and maybe it'll lead to something. And so I, you know, at that time, I was starting to listen to more podcasts. I was certainly finding myself, finding it easier for me to consume information via audio rather than through reading somebody's website or blog posts or anything like that. And so I just started thinking about how would I I do this thing where I show what I can do in an audio format. And then I just kind of heard it, heard what it would sound like in my head. And then I had to figure out how to make it.
0: I was listening to you talk about it. Um, You and your husband, Ryan Johnson, director, were on David Chang's podcast a few years ago. And I think you said something like, you know, it's nothing, there was no mold. So you had to create the mold. And I think that's true. I don't think there's anything else like this podcast that I've ever heard
1: yeah um and certainly there there really weren't very many podcasts about movies at all in 2014 and (laughs) so it wasn't like and the ones that were were two or three people talking talk show style um and so that was great because there was freedom you know there wasn't there wasn't an idea of what would be a success that you that there was any sort of pressure to do and and specifically this show, you know, I never thought it would become my full-time job to the extent that it has, you know? And so I wasn't thinking about making money. I wasn't thinking about trying to reach a large audience. I was just thinking like, if, you know, if I had one shot to do exactly what I wanted to do, what would it be?
0: How great is that, right? That it turned <laughs> into something. I mean, that just rarely yeah. happens if those things align. It's fantastic. Do you know what your next season's going to be? I don't
1: know what the next season is yet. Um, As I said, I I really kind of just finished this one, but I am working on a project with, in collaboration with another person who has sort of a true Hollywood story in their family. Um, And I don't know if it's going to be a a next season of You Must Remember This, but we're trying to figure it out right now. It might be sort of a standalone podcast.
0: Hmm. And are you still writing, I know your last book was about Howard Hughes' Are you still, do you have, still have some books in you?
1: I would really love to do a book version of Polly's story. Um, yeah. You know, some kind of expansion of her memoir or perhaps a story about her and these other women of her time who had similar experiences. Um, unfortunately, books just take so long to write. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, um, you know, I like to, I feel more satisfied doing things that have kind of a, a shorter timeline. Um, but I do feel like if somebody's gonna write a polyplat book, it should be me.
0: Hallelujah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, you may have explained this in your early seasons, but I have yet to go back and listen to everything, which I will. When you say join us, won't you, in the podcast, is that a call back to old Hollywood or is that just a Karina thing?
1: It's just something that I, it's not a callback to anything specific at all. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, you know, when I was sort of coming up with the initial sound of the show and, and the phrases that I would, you know, say, I was inspired by these sort of hazy memories of, of late night watching, watching movies on TV late at night when I was a teenager and, and there would be sort of hosts, you know, I mean, Turner classic movies has a version of it now, but I have these hazy memories of, of people like Elvira, but also the people that Elvira was spoofing um, of these, you know, kind of like you, you, they'd have these sort of late night broadcasts on local TV and it would be somebody sort of, you know, join us as we go into the inner sanctum of Hollywood history, or even, I don't, I don't know if you know this at all, if, if you, you know, but there used to be this guy on, on New York in, in New York, It was an old-timey radio guy named Danny Stiles. And he had a radio show. um, When I lived in New York, it was on Saturday night. But he would just play, like, um, you know, recordings from live radio broadcasts from the 1930s of big band music, basically. And he had this whole intro that was like, we're opening the mahogany doors to the music museum. And just, I love stuff like that, where it's, like, it's, you know, this sort of theatrical um, sl- almost slightly spooky. Like, what are we going to find in here right. sort of thing? And so I was just trying to conjure something like that.
0: I don't remember him, but I remember Jonathan Schwartz. That oh, of course. Big yeah. One. Yeah. My yeah. parents would torture us with that every car ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the memories. So where can everybody find you to follow you and follow your podcast?
1: So you can find the podcast anywhere you get your podcast. It's called You Must Remember This. Uh, Our website is youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And I'm on Twitter at Karina Longworth. That's where I'm most active on social media. And then the podcast is also on Twitter at Remember This Pod.
0: Karina, thank you so much. I really feel like crying because your podcast (laughs) just meant so much to me. And I just feel so much gratitude. It takes a lot at this point in my jaded life. for something to affect me so much and resonate so much with me. So I just, I know how much work, I can't even imagine how much work goes into researching and writing. And I should say the writing alone is just stupefying and just uh, obviously you're a writer, but to be able to have all those gifts and then bring Polly to life the way you did, it was just beautiful. And I'm just so appreciative for it. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you connected with it.
0: Well, thank you. And it was great to talk to you and I can't wait for your next project.
1: Cool. Thanks so much.